Welcome to episode 114 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, the cultural editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at the magazine. Today, our guest is the photographer Daffy Jones, who grew up in Oxford and whose photographs of Oxford's bright young things launched his career. Tina Brown was quick to scoop him up when she was editor of Tatler and his book Oxford, The Last Hurrah, published in 2022, was a bestseller, mainly because it has a photograph of me in it. <laughs> Now he has a new book called England, The Last Hurrah, an astonishing collection of photographs documenting a riotous world of upper-class decadence during the Thatcher era. It won't do so well because it doesn't have a photograph of me in it, but never mind. (laughs) We're delighted to have him with us. Good morning, Daffod. Hi, good morning. Well, good morning, Daffod, and a very warm welcome to you. I have to say that I was absolutely gripped by this book and read it cover to cover and Hold on, there aren't well, that many no, words. Well, there are a few, and I went back. Well, I studied the caption. Quite a lot. Yes, I studied because, as as you and I, Daphne, are pretty much the same age. We were both young during the Thatcher era, so there was lots that I recognised in those decadent <laughs> days. Anyway, there's a fascinating essay in it by you, and an excellent introduction by Tina Brown. So there's a lot to talk about. But first, I think our listeners will be intrigued to know how you got such good access to all those impossibly grand parties and stately homes, Cambridge May Balls, the 4th of June at Eton and so on, and how you managed to capture such extraordinarily revealing photographs without being punched. (laughs) (laughs) Well, funny enough, early on, one of my, um, one difficult incident was when I was at a Scottish ball and someone objected he, took, he told me he took it as a personal insult against his family that I didn't take his picture. And I thought he was joking, but he was serious, I realised. But um, it, it, it wasn't that easy, actually, taking the, you know, having access. And it was a gradual thing that as people got to know me and they liked the pictures. Tell us the story from the start, because right at the beginning, Tatley didn't have very good access to parties, did it? And you started off taking photographs of cars going up a drive, didn't you? Because well, that was yeah, well, as far well, as you well, got. <laughs> well, uh, I, I like the pictures. They didn't run in the magazine because it wasn't the sort of type of image the magazine wanted. But I still thought it was worth... Um, yeah, I went... Uh, there was a big ball going on in Kent, John Aspinall, and the Tatler couldn't get in. But I made my way there and stood in a country lane. And actually, I was stranded because I had no car. And um, I had no way of getting away. <laughs> and finally, uh, so I just took pictures and I was sort of enjoying it. And people didn't seem to mind uh, because I didn't look particularly like a press photographer. I had a kind of satchel and a small camera and um, it was drizzling, I remember. And I, got, I, I was enjoying the sort of aesthetics of the pictures because there were raindrops on the cars. And um, I quite liked the scene, actually. I was um, after dawn and the light was, was great because as the light gradually improved, people were leaving by that time. But the, you got some movement with the cars and one of the guests stopped and asked me if I needed a lift anywhere. Uh, I got to know him later, it was Mark Cecil. What time in the morning was that? By then, it must have been about six o'clock when I caught the first train to London. <laughs> I mean, what is interesting, it is a snapshot of a particular era, which sort of was the curtain raiser to something we're now kind of completely oblivious to in some ways. And, and Tina Brown, in her in- introduction, talks about Tatler being sort of stapled together, almost like a school magazine before it really took off to become the glossy magazine we all know and love today. And the other interesting thing is that uh, you're the sort of Harry Styles of photography, because I think she found you when you came second 
in a photography yes. competition and she saw your photographs and thought, that is exactly the look I want. Uh, I think Tina heard about the competition and there was a picture out at the Sunday Times, James Danziger, who now has a gallery in New York, and he put a good word in for me. I didn't. I learned about this later that when Tina rang him to, uh, saying, competition, this is winner, uh, what's, I, I want to uh, call them because she was looking for a photographer. And he said, oh, the, the, the chap that came, the runner-up is uh, more interesting. You should look at his work. What would you take in photographs of? Well, the Sunday Times ran a competition for young photographers and about a thousand entered. Uh, I had a studio in Oxford, so I was there already. And you grew to... up there, didn't you? Grew yeah, I grew up there and I'd worked at Butlin's Holiday Camp. I'd done a season and saved up enough to buy camera equipment. And I was trying to set up as a photographer. But in the meantime, I entered this competition and they shortlisted 25 of us and gave us all a choice of subjects. And one of the subjects was the return of the bright young things. And that's how I came to start taking pictures in Oxford. There are some iconic photos in there, which all our listeners would instantly recognise. Mm. Unfortunately, we can't put them up as this is a podcast. But the girl being thrown into a pond, for example... Brilliant uh, is one, and then the other one is sort of three couples snogging at the feathers ball. Yes. Socially <laughs> oh, yeah. distanced, socially di- each couple is socially distanced from the other couple, but it's just a, a beautifully framed photograph. And I think it's not too much to say that you sort of defined a particular era. It was a, a world that was going on, and there were cha- it was changing at the same time. There was sort of beginning of yuppies, and uh, and also the Thatcher period was kind of of deregulation was changing lives for everyone and it uh, that was why I thought of it as a last hurrah because it got much more competitive for you know people who had had all sorts of advantages and gone to Eton and and Oxford and then suddenly found the world was getting much tougher. Tell us about the first assignment that Tina Brown sent you on, which was to follow Diana Spencer, she was then, to that race meeting at Sandown Park. That's an amazing photograph. Tell us about that. Well, as I was saying, uh, Tatler didn't have very good access. I couldn't get um, uh, a press pass to go to Sandown Park. Someone at the Sandown Park race course said, well, you could always just come and buy a ticket. You don't have to have a press pass. So that that's what I did. I just went as an ordinary race-going punter. And um, uh, I remember there was been surprised how many photographers with incredibly long lenses all on a balcony they and they had different ways of working uh, Anwar Hussein never got very close to the people he photographed he was a bit like a sort of bird watcher he'd be up on a balcony high up with this incredibly long lens just watching <laughs> and uh, but Diana was only within kind of camera range for a very brief period and because I was wanting to get the photographers as well, I went on the other side. And also I didn't have a press pass, so I couldn't be in the press kind of um, area. And that's where I did. I only took kind of three or four frames where Dana walked across this bit of grass and then the photographers all watching and then the um, members of the public as well all staring at her. And I felt quite sorry for her, really. It became the absolute image for the hunted princess, as it were, didn't it? That because she just looked so lonely and surrounded by crowds, but but not amongst them at all, just out on her own. It's funny the different people things people see in a picture because years later, after Diana died, Vanity Fair ran it across two pages, and um, uh, Tom Ford noticed that she had a Gucci bag. <laughs> 
and he wanted a print. So he he was seeing something different in there. It was the Gucci bag that excited him. <laughs> but there's another photograph that really intrigued me. That I, I I'm not sure it's even one of your best known ones, but it was it's a photograph of two boys. I think they're Edward Hoare and William Knott in 1981 smoking cigars, and I noticed that Succession, you know, in its opening sequence. They basically nicked it and copied it. Oh, really? <laughs> Have you seen oh. that, Ed? You know, the, no. What's that? You know, in the opening sequence of Succession, there's oh, that, yeah. there's an image of two boys smoking cigars. Oh yes, it's an absolutely oh. dead lift from your your photograph. I think oh, we just really? made Daff, I think we just made Daff <laughs> a very rich man. No, uh, actually, a long time ago, some people, re- uh, an advertising agency, recreated some of my pictures of the dangerous sports club skiing down ski slopes uh, on ridiculous vehicles, and um, I contacted a lawyer because they just reconstructed my pictures, and he said there was nothing you could do about it. So I was in one of the getaway cars after they jumped off the. Clifton Suspension Bridge. Oh, really? <laughs> You're kidding me. No, no, Charlotte, so... <laughs> we should do a podcast with you. When are you going to write your memoirs? So I did know them all very well. And I, I mean, I just, I, you know, I had not seen that ridiculous photograph of them on that table skiing, you know, sledging oh. down San Moritz. Mm-hmm. But um, how did how did they survive jumping off the Clifton Suspension Bridge? Aren't you meant to die? Bungie, bungie, they bungie jumped off it. Before they, bungee in jumping tail was... coats, in black tie and tail coat. I mean, the whole thing's absolutely absurd. They, they, they didn't know. It, <laughs> they didn't know for sure it would work, did they? No. And the really, I tell you what was scary. They bounced back up at oh, such yeah. an alarming rate. And we were all, abs- it looked as if they were going to bounce up so fast they were going to hit their heads and die. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was quite a moment. And then they were just left dangling there while the police started coming. Because <laughs> pulling them up. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was April Fool's Day, wasn't it, as well? I think it was I can't remember. I mean, April you know, everyone was young and drunk, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it, what an extraordinary time and then and then you've got images of you know those you've got two in this book two unbelievably beautiful images of a young Nigella Lawson looking absolutely gorgeous and always rather pensive yeah yeah yeah, she was a sort of muse of mine almost every time I saw her I would take pictures can you talk a bit Daffod about the role of a photographer at these parties because I've been at parties where you've been present and you're very obviously self-effacing uh you're not sitting away chatting to everyone. But in a weird way, you're also the centre of attention because everybody knows who you are. And everybody knows, first of all, if you take their photograph, it's like a status symbol. Daffod's bothered to think I'm important enough to have my photograph taken at this party. Uh, And secondly, obviously, they're all desperate and hope, as you were saying earlier, that, that it'll be published. So you have this very odd role where you're sort of trying to be the wallpaper, but you're also, weirdly, the centre of everybody's attention. But just before you answer that, David, what's extraordinary about what you do is not one single photograph in this book looks as if the person you're photographing is aware that you're there. That's what I think so odd. So that's really interesting what you're saying, Ed, because you're saying... So it's everyone... two questions, David. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh that's all right. Yeah, well... It's sort I, of the same question, but yeah. different angles. Um, I think, in a way, that was why I moved to America at the end of the period that the book... The book really finishes around 1989 which is when I moved to America because I just thought I was getting too well known and it was ah. much harder to take pictures, you know, candid pictures. And uh, it was wonderful to start in America again. When I started in America, I, I didn't have very good access 
just like at the beginning at the Tatler. And um, I found that very refreshing, just being a sort of anonymous. And um, obviously in the last 20 years, I've, I've just had to give up on being anonymous. But uh, the, the, what was great about the pictures early on is the freedom just to take pictures, record what was happening. And I wasn't very noticeable as a photographer. But that's sort of what I'm trying to get at inside your head, because you didn't want to participate in the parties. You didn't feel like you were left out. No, no, I didn't. I, I took it very seriously as a kind of project, anthropological project, really. I thought it was um, a world that hadn't been photographed, and I wanted to do it properly in a sort of journalistic way. But you did find it incredibly other, didn't you? Because in your essay that you write in the book, there's a bit when you talk about coming home from a big ball and you stop at a motorway services station where everything's just carrying on as normal and people are buying sandwiches and things. And you look back at your last few hours and you think, actually, was I just in this extraordinary world that doesn't really exist anymore? I mean, you found it very, very a strange world, didn't you? Yes, well, there, were, there was this surrealism about it. And I, I think people were invent you know trying to recreate something and it was an imaginary world really and they were just having a party they were having fun and um it did contrast very strongly with what was going on around once you left the party when you look at someone like martin parr who sort of established himself as an artist do you feel envious or do you think you're established as an artist i i probably missed a few chances to get in on the artist <laughs> Uh, world. I think it's much easier now to be an artist than to be a, a journalist. And I'm sort of probably moving, moving towards the art side of things. I mean, I really, I, I went to art school and um, my wife's a, an artist and my our daughter and our son was in that group uh, assemble who won the Turner oh, Prize. Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we are sort of involved in the arts and I probably didn't think of what I was doing as art, though, but I, actually it is a sort of craft come art. So there's another little bit in your essay when you talk about going to... At one stage, I don't quite, can't quite remember when it was, you, t you were taking your photographs to show some curators and you oh, said yeah. one curator found them absolutely repellent. <laughs> Tell us oh, about yeah. that encounter. Well, that's happened more than <laughs> once, actually. Uh, no, well, that particular time, he... Um, thought he saw himself in one of my pictures and it wasn't <laughs> the image he wanted to portray uh, working for a gallery that he was there dancing on a table <laughs> having fun <laughs> at Cambridge. I think Chris Beatles reacted very strongly when I showed my work to him. He uh, sort of, he said he hated the people in the pictures so much. They were very good pictures, but he couldn't stand the people in them. There's no doubt that anyone looking at these pictures is going to react to the people in them very strongly in one way or another. So, so what is it that makes it those images so brilliantly loath? You know, the people in them so loathsome. Do you think to some people? I think England has a lot of hatred in, in uh, amongst certain people, and that's one of the uh, for each other. You know, and it it's not just middle classes versus the upper classes. It's sort of little seg groups inside the various classes. The kind of Etonians versus these the more minor public schools. And there is, and actually it's one of the risks of my pictures is that I get some horrible headline about toffs, you know, uh, behaving badly or something. Um, whereas actually the picture might be just 
toffs having innocent fun, you know, just enjoying themselves. On the back of your the book that's out now, there is a lovely quote by Tina Brown saying they have this elegiac quality because it, it is it is a lost lost world and that and that is like you're saying there is a kind of innocence just about people having fun but there is still i think it's possibly just the lack of awareness of that kind of privileged world that has gone it is more diverse now at parties and colleges i mean if you look at my pictures of oxford in the 80s there are no no black faces is quite shocking. Is it a world do you think that's entirely it is it's just gone or is it hidden? I don't think it's hidden. I think it's it's changed. Um, yeah. And, and people have told me who've got children at Oxford now that it's just the same. <laughs> They've heard it's just the same. Uh, what happened in London was for me as a photographer was uh, you know the last few years the thing that was most interesting were all the oligarchs coming to London suddenly and uh, all the sort of non-doms and that was a big change in the social world so the party world changes and evolves all the time. So what are you doing now? Well my sort of work for magazines has dried up because they they haven't got the money they had if you look at the Tatler now well if you look at the Tatler from the 80s by the mid-80s, every page of parties had an ad next to it, so there were 10 pages of ads. Whereas now, if you look at the social pages in magazines, there aren't any ads, so it's quite shocking. And so the income for photographers has gone, and a lot of magazines are struggling. And I, I liked working for magazines because of the freedom, the sort of editorial freedom. But uh, what began to happen was PRs would hire photographers and then give the pictures to magazines to use. But then they'd have more of an agenda to promote whatever whatever they were promoting. And so I started getting more PR jobs, which have is you don't have the same freedom. And when you went to America, who who were you working for then? Or were you freelancing or uh, did... I I switched around a lot. First of all I worked for Tina on, on Vanity Fair. And I, I wasn't happy with what I was doing. And I switched to another magazine called Connoisseur. And then I worked for Graydon Carter on the New York Observer. And then he left to go and work for Vanity Fair, go and edit Vanity Fair. So I was, I kept, um, and I came back to England once in the middle with my wife and two children. There's a very interesting bit in your essay as well about kind of juggling being a family man with your job. Because, you know, there, there you are bringing up kids and, and everything and having to put your dinner jacket on every night, get out to some unbelievably posh party somewhere, and that you're, you had to, you used to have to hang your dinner jacket up in the yard to get rid of the smell of cigarette smoke. <laughs> yeah, my, my son said the other day, actually, that was the thing he remembers about me, was I used to stink of cigarettes, <laughs> although I'm a non-smoker. Yeah, no, there's so many cigarettes in the photographs that, you, you know, we forget how much we all used, did you used to smoke Puffed away. Yeah, yeah, I still do. Are you still, well, you fake yeah, like a lunatic. <laughs> yeah, but they make very good pictures, actually, cigarettes. You know, the smoke wafting around and uh, there's something about inhaling makes a nice image. It's much better than smiling, I think. I, don't, I prefer an inhaling picture. Some of the drinking pictures, there's a wonderful photograph of, there's not actually a person in it, but there is her hand and it's coming up from under the oh, table. Yeah. Who, yeah. Whose hand was that? <laughs> oh, I can't remember, but the thing that's, 
that's funny about that. I think the hand is identified in the book. I do. Oh, I think it is as well. He's <laughs> grabbing a bottle of champagne from under the table. It's just... Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the thing that's funny about that picture, it was at this event called the Falklands Ball as well, which I just think is funny. No. What's your favourite picture? I think they're all favourites. I, I think the, there's a couple dancing near the beginning. There's just a kind of romantic picture of a couple dancing. Uh, it's at Cliveden. And it's... Uh, there's a picture of Margaret Thatcher looking like Marilyn Monroe. Oh, yes, I love that yes. picture. She's holding her dress down. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's the one of the couple. Well, that was a fantastic tour de raison. For anyone who's lived through the 80s, you, you just have to have this book. It's quite extraordinary. Oh, it really yeah. does capture it. Just wanted to ask you one more thing about sleeping, because you said this very interesting thing. You know, you've got all those wonderful pictures about 6am on the beautiful backs of Cambridge, you know, people passed out after Mabel's and, and so on. And um, you said that, that you, to you, sleeping at parties was a real indication of a society in decline. And I was just very interested by that. The way the sleeping pictures, uh, the way I originally noticed, noticed them is we had a kind of quiet month on the Tatlow, on the party world. And I looked through my um, kind of catalogue of images by then. I'd been doing it for a couple of years and found I had pictures of people sleeping at all sorts of events, at Sirencester Agricultural College, Mabel's, but also just a party where I'd left quite early. There might be someone who'd fallen asleep at a party. And um, <laughs> Craig Brown at the, that time wrote a very funny piece he called The Sleeping Pills, saying, you know, you don't need to take sleeping pills, you just need to go to a you know, uh, a charity ball <laughs> or a hunt ball and fall asleep. And um, then later I moved to America and I never saw anyone sleeping at a party. Actually, I, I went to, you know, the same thing. I went to Hollywood and New York and not once did I see anyone that had fallen, fallen asleep. And quite often I'd be at a wedding that went on till four in the morning. And so it was a big difference. Do you think that's because... In that in at that time in in that particular kind of class that you were capturing, people just didn't care. You know, as in America, everybody was still very sort of socially mobile and aware of their reputation and all that kind of thing. Well, maybe they just they they've got more <laughs> oomph in them. <laughs> when I came back to England, you know, in uh, when was it nineteen? I mean, still a long time ago, nineteen ninety six, and continued working as a photographer. You know, I I then kept. I did still notice more people sleeping at parties. Um, <laughs> and actually, as the internet started, you know, at race meetings and things, and, uh, and actually doorways at Christmas time, you, uh, you know, you see more people. Maybe English people drink more. Maybe that's I think that's probably true. <laughs> anyway, it's been fantastic speaking to you, yeah. Daffod. Thank you so much. Uh, where can people buy the book? It's England, The Last Hurrah, published by ACC Art Books. And it's available at Hatchards, uh, Waterstones. And there's also an exhibition on at the Centre for British Photography in German Street. Oh, brilliant. OK, well, we'll pop into that, definitely. Absolutely. It's great book. Thank you so much, Daphis. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Just to say, I did go along to Daphis' exhibition at the Centre for British Photography at 49 German Street, and I can highly recommend it. It's wonderful seeing his photographs close up. The exhibition's running until June, so do get along and see them for yourselves. Next week, we're changing the subject completely and talking about a new short film of 
about asylum seekers, directed by the award-winning director and asylum seeker, Hassan Akkad. And we're also going to be telling you about a new play on Harold Pinter and Samuel Beckett called Stumped, that's opening in Bath and then touring to Cambridge and onto the Hampstead Theatre in London. As usual, you can find us at countryandtownhouse.com, where you'll also find the latest edition of the magazine, as well as be able to listen to our sister podcast, House Guest with Carol Annette, talking to some of the most fascinating and influential names in interior design. We love your feedback and we'd also like to hear if there's anything you'd like to hear us profiling or changing. So please send me a comment or email us on charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. Thank you very much indeed for listening and see you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>